Hi, my name is Jim Lewis. And my name is Chris Painter. Welcome to season two of Inside Cyber Diplomacy, a casual and we hope revealing conversation with Jim and I and our guest of the week that helps to go behind the scenes and really tell the story of what's going on. Carrie Ann, it's great to see you again. You've been one of the pioneers in this area with a really key regional organization, the Organization for American States. Just as a general question to start, what kind of led you to this endeavor? And how long have you been doing this now? You've been kind of leading these efforts for a while over there. I've been doing the efforts at OAS and Cyber for like about nine years. I think as long as I've been here. Before that, just understanding the UN, been since I was in the government of Trinidad and Tobago years before that. But I think recognizing that as the UN have these discussions, I saw that the OAS wasn't as present as it should be as a player at the table. So I've really, even though we have like all the other things going on, making sure that our voice is heard, even though we're not a member state and we're just an observer, was really critical and just seemed as if if we back off or just not be present at the table, it would be a loss. I think a lot of our listeners know the OAS, but Mm -hmm. there's probably some who don't. So it might be useful just to level set a little bit and say what the OAS is. Well, the OAS is the oldest regional international organization. It's been around for almost 100 years. And one of the things about it is it represents over 30 countries between as far north as far south in the Americas. It's a regional political body as well. So what it allows is for all of those countries to have one vote, one country at a table, no matter how small or how large. And it brings together the views of divergent economies as well, really large economies, Brazil, really small economies, Antigua and Barbuda, for example. So it's a really cool space to be able to talk about various topics. We don't just do cyber, but the organization holistically speaks to security, speaks to terrorism, it speaks to water just making sure sustainability is critical, democracy, human rights. More recently, in like 1999, we started to talk about cybersecurity and the discussions then evolved over the years until 2014. The region was the first like regional block to actually have a cybersecurity regional strategy. And that speaks to the need to ensure that we have technical people, we have policies related to cyber, and we have awareness generally on the issue of cyber. So the cybersecurity program was established then, and the program has been around for almost 18, 19 years, and has just been working on building capacities of member states more than anything else on how to treat with the issue of digital. So what what are the big issues in the region? I mean, what are you looking at now if you've been doing it for so long? What are the regional issues OAS worries about? It's funny that you use the word worry, because I think it's like dealing with an issue and then worried about the issue, like bring it to two different places, Jim. (laughs) Right now, if you think about the issues that we face is the fact that most of our countries are trying to digitize. They're like investing a lot into a digital agenda. They're taking huge loans out, trying to just catch up with the rest of the globe on just digitizing their society. So that's like one thing. That's like a major issue. But what I would be worried about with that issue is whether or not they have the skill sets to be able to deal with all the threats. So like without sounding cliched, if you're offline, you're kind of safe. <laughs> you're <still> <laughs> <here>. <laughs> 
as I've already said, like that, digital that's true threat, for us. Yeah. You, know, you know, that cliche, like, hey, the more digitized we get, it's the greatest cyber threats become. Like, I didn't want to say that cliche, but for me, like, bringing it down to like the grassroots, it's just if you're paper based, your threat landscape pretty much narrows down. But with COVID and everything, everybody's now rushing to be digital, have a digital economy, reap the benefits of being digital. And we don't have the manpower to understand the threats, let alone to have persons monitoring all of those digital assets that we're investing in and then have the money to actually update them. Like setting up an entire government ministry on one platform based on a loan you get this year that you're going to be paying for for the next 30 years and then keeping it updated and making it mash with legacy systems that you already have that gives the vulnerabilities is something that I worry about. It's all those legacy systems as we digitize that we don't have the skill sets to keep checking on and monitoring. I might sound like naive to not be worried about ransomware and all the other stuff that people would Mm -hmm. automatically talk about the threats. But to me, ransomware is it today. It's going to be some new fancy thing tomorrow, you know. So for me, it's not the threat. We can tell you're a veteran. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've been in this business for too long. Yeah, the motto in cybersecurity is, so what else is new? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know that one of the narratives we've been pushing a lot in the capacity building realm is that every country is moving towards digitization and embraces this as the great new mantra that's going to save everything, that if they don't do cybersecurity right, they don't have it. But, you know, the OAS has been leading in these, as you said, for a long time. I remember in 2003, when we're down in uh, Buenos Aires and they always had its first cyber strategy really long before even, I mean, about the same time the U.S. was working on one. So that's pretty early. And SICTE, your group, the counter, what, you know, what was a counterterrorism group has been really broader has taken the lead on that. And, and I guess part of the question I have for you is how easy it is to work across various pillars in the OAS because you have the Remha group who does legal stuff. You have the, the CTEL who does more of the ITU kind of stuff. You have your organization, but, but it seems to me, at least from the outside and, and my experience in the government is that your organization, SICTE, has really been the most impactful. Uh, I don't want to create fights within OAS, but the most impactful in terms of really making progress in the region. I think it's easy to answer because when you kind of step back and look at your mandate, your mandate is building capacities in cybersecurity. So it's digital skills, really. CTEL, which is the Inter-American Committee for Telecommunications, focuses on telecommunications regulations. So if you think about the history of even ITU and going all the way back, the bottom line is you can't have the internet. Well, now it's satellite. It's all like a whole different ballgame. But mm-hmm. initially, you couldn't have the internet without the telco. So it was like automatic that you work with telco in digital security for the telco lines. And then cybercrime is its own beast because at the end of the day, cybercrime is you investigating the aftermath of a cybersecurity breach and if a crime occurred generally. So there's distinctions in the three realms. So for me, there's no conflict in at all and they work complementary. So like even now I can tell you about an initiative that I started, which may not be able to be too public i'll sanitize it (laughs) but like right now we have a few of our member states that have been working on national cyber security strategies so if you don't know like all the way back we had up to 2014 we had only five 
strategies in the region. Now we have 17 cybersecurity strategies, yeah. five in draft, but some of them have been in draft for like the past 18 months. So, <laughs> and also with the UN negotiations that's happening, we recognize some of our member states are kind of stuck on understanding the difference between Budapest and the UN and how the whole process is going. So I'm actually tag teaming a mission in March with Remha, which is the interministerial body for ministers of justice, to go to three of these countries to actually do a high level engagement to explain to them why their strategies is important and goes beyond just a people, why the UN process is important and why the Budapest is important and actually help them to see that landscape. So for me, the three entities work well together. What I've been trying to push, and it's a term I'm trying to coin and push a lot, is intelligent capacity building. Mm -hmm. Intelligent capacity building means that you're not just being strategic, but you're recognizing where the different interlocutories are for all of the different areas. So whether it be cybercrime, digitization, digital agenda, e-government, seeing where all the interlocutories are and recognizing that each person still have their own mandate. Where it cross-pollinates, it's fine. Like not to be afraid of it. But intelligence and the capacity building is to see the cybersecurity skill needed and target that. And that's what we're trying to move into. If you're going to prioritize intelligent capacity building, what would the list be? I mean, what's the thing that people need the most and then going down from there? What we're moving into for 2023, and I can tell you upfront because I've told the world every time I have an opportunity, is nationalizing capacity building. So the regional approach is good in terms of getting consensus on the big issues that's needed. Mm -hmm. So like having commonality in the trainings that might be needed or the types of training, but actually going down to the grassroots of looking at what trainings have you received? What are the investments you're doing? And then based on investments you're doing, where will you have gaps like in the next five years? So actually nationalizing and tailoring the training, mm -hmm. even from our perspective, if we offer training to that country, so we know that Argentina just won the World Cup, so they get picked in this podcast to be mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> so for example, if Argentina, go Argentina, um, if Argentina <laughs> decides to ask the OES for a training and we can actually look back on our, we have over 18 years of track record with Argentina. We can say, okay, you've gotten these trainings, but with the rotations you've had, are those skills still needed? You can actually give very concrete advice, but you know what's beautiful, Chris, with your role as the GFCE? If that is done at that intelligent level, it means that it's not just the OAS who can provide that need. The country can actually sit back. We, with our 18 years, can say to them, you've had this suite of experience already in training. We can provide this for you, but you can also go to the GFCE and get support for this area. You can go to the U.S. government. You can, you can talk to them intelligently about the needs that they have and who could probably provide it. But for me, it's more than strategic. Initially, I used to call it strategic, but I think it's a little bit more than strategic. It has to be like an AI kind of intelligence. How do you work with the private sector on this, not just countries? So the next level with the private sector is the OES has, I can say, I think we have like over 15 partners that we work with, over 20 partners. What we see is we try to ensure that whichever company that we talk to it's bringing value without the business element to it. So what we look at is what, how can we match that with the country or with our general efforts? So as an example, with AWS, we work with AWS to do some of our capacity building. Mm -hmm. When they come in, they would come in based on the advice that we'd say to them, like we need X 
and they would come in and provide X, but they're not coming in to provide X if they can do Y. So as the OAS, we're, we're not like a broker, but we're able to filter the business push that a lot of countries are fearful of working with private sector because they want they don't want the business interest to come across. Sure. So for us, I think we kind of have helped a lot of the private sector companies to be more neutral in their approach to capacity building when countries actually need the help. If that grows to business, that's for us like not even secondary or third. It's like whenever that happens, it happens. But our interest has never been to help them grow their business needs. So we help them to filter that. Well, Carrie, at first, you'll be happy to know that uh, our friend Nicholas Vidal has already, I've already communicated with him on uh, email, and he's very happy that from the Argentinian foreign ministry, they're very, they're very celebratory. So that's good. <laughs> I, I hate penalty kicks. I go away with them. I walked it's, away. I couldn't yeah, see. I left yeah. the room and I was like, did they win? <laughs> no, but it was an exciting game. But probably to it, you know, if, if, it, if they're anything like me, they were probably, well, he, his response was, we always go through hell, you know, it's always, it's always a challenge and we're just happy we persevered. So you mentioned the partnership with the Global Forum on Cyber Expertise. And I really think that's been one of the strongest partnerships that we've had from my perspective. First as a regional organization. Second, you, you've been very longstanding in this. And, and third, I think it's been really mutually supportive. What do you think we can even do more to build that partnership up? And again, most people who listen to this know the Global Forum on Cyber Expertise because I, I help run that, and that's a worldwide capacity building uh, group, which has a lot of private sector, civil society in many countries and regional organizations like OAS. I think one of the things that we're working on, we've already been speaking to the GFCE to see how we strengthen that, is its role as that regional, that global matchmaker, not even regional I think recognizing that it has partners in all four regions across the world and that there is a neutrality in persons becoming members of the GFC. There's no cost it right now, but at least those who are becoming partners, I think are coming partners because they see the global benefit of contributing. And if we can start to get that as a greater messaging within the GFCE that you're contributing to a global capacity and being able to do that matchmaking, I think is the, the next stage. With the OAS, we offered and GFC accepted making us the regional hub for the Americas. Yeah. And we think that's an excellent matchmaking right now because we can be neutral. We can we have our capacity building program that's completely standalone, but creating that regional identity for the GFCE with the knowledge that the OAS comes with it, I think will allow it to deepen the relationship even cross-regionally, matching persons from across the region, from Asia Pacific, that may be able to help a small island state in the region, or matching someone from Europe that actually has experiences that a large country like Brazil could benefit. So Portugal helping Brazil because the language barrier, and they'll be able to come in automatically. So I think the, the reach of the GFC is untapped, to be honest. It hasn't been tapped at all yet. Like, there's so much potential in it. I'm excited to see what it will become, but recognizing its role as that global coordinator, I think is critical first. Great. So maybe change gears a little bit, but one of the topics that's come up a few times in the OAS and in SICTI is confidence building measures. And I remember I had one of the ambassadors from one of the larger South American countries tell me once, you know, the CBMs for them, are not as military as they might be, say, in the OSCE or in other contexts. 
what do you think about confidence building measures for the region? What does confidence building measure mean? I mean, what's really cool about the, our region and CSBMs, because in, in the Americas, the confidence security building measures has been around for like ages. We have like almost 37 of them. Mm-hmm. The recent six cyber ones are the are non-traditional CBMs. And what it has allowed the region over the years is to actually build cooperation and build some coordination on some key topics. Like for this wider 30-something CSBMs, member states voluntarily report their progress on them. For the CBMs in cyber specifically, which are part of that, omnibus set it allows member states to start to see who the other party is on the other end of the line when they actually click you know so our first three cyber cbms spoke specifically to points of contacts for policy recognizing that we have c certs america which is the regional certs Mm -hmm. so we don't need a technical point of contact because we already have this CERTs Americas, which member states have been, we have like almost 30 countries already. And then we have policies and legislation related to cyber is the second one, and then ministries of foreign affairs, points of contact, if they're different from the first. So those three measures alone speak to member states recognizing the need to just know people and be able to reach out to people when stuff happens. The others that are there recognizes the role of diplomacy and cyber and speak specifically to training and building confidence. Because if you think about it, the persons who are at the table negotiating all the UN treaties now in cyber, if it is that we have trained them sufficiently, we know that they're going to the table with knowledge. So you're not trying to influence what they'll say, but you try to ensure that when they say what they're saying, it's coming from a place of knowledge. With the with that mandate, like our program, we've been training, we've trained over 500 plus diplomats already. So we're really happy because we've been able to push out the knowledge content. So we train them on what has happened with the first committee from as far back as 2010 with all the GGEs, all the open-ended working groups. We've given them all the knowledge in first, third committee negotiations, how they work. And we've actually sent uptick. There's actually, a, I've heard a recent statistics that I think is We've seen even women participation from LATAM increase to 52% in recent years. So like you're seeing the uptick from that. I guess OAS has been interested in the CBMs now for about 10 years. Is that right? You mean service CBMs? Yeah. Yeah. As you said, they started with a capacity building Mm -hmm. focus and then started moving into CBMs and to some extent norms too. But Mm -hmm. You know, as you know, the UN and the first committee has talked about, and it's not, nothing is easy in the UN, as you know, and this idea of a directory of CBMs to help. You guys have already done that, essentially, right? So so are you trying to help with that effort by saying, hey, look, we've already done this. This is a good example that you might be able to to model, or are they, are they consulting you? Or is this something, you know, as you said, you're an observer, but you're an informed observer of those uh, those deliberations. I mean, what has been really nice for the chair of the open-ended working group, they've invited the OAS twice so far to present formally to the members. Mm-hmm. Earlier this year, we presented on CBMs and what we're doing. And then in this last intersessional they had, they asked us to present specifically on our points of contacts that we have within the CBMs. 
we haven't been specifically consulted, but I was sharing recently that what I noted from the November POA resolution that was just passed, yeah. that it said to seek the views of member states on the scope, structure, and content of the program of action. And a part of the program of action speaks to a lot of things, like yeah. there's a lot of talk as to whether it's going to be the points of contact, directory, the global directory that will happen. What I'm hoping is that they will continue to consult. <laughs> there's a lot of talk that the regional OAS is not atypical. And I think it's something that we have accepted that for the Americas region, having a program like the cybersecurity program within OAS, it's not typical of all regions. But when I switch, I said this joke to, to, um, to Chris recently, when I switch my head and I go back to what I'm trained in as a lawyer, you are trained to advise on anything that you have to your client needs. So for me, like thinking about our program, with over 18 years of experience, we can advise other regions very agnostically. Like we can actually look at what their challenges are and say, hey, a program like ours may not be good, but we can tell you that these things work and these things do not work. The beauty of the OES is we have really tiny countries and we have really large countries. So we can pretty much adapt to what Africa is facing. We can pretty quickly adapt to what Asia is facing and say to them that from our small island country experiences, this is what we would recommend for Asia Pacific from our larger countries that have a huge population poverty or may have some challenges in development, this is what we would recommend. So Chris, the short answer is we do hope they see us not as a region that is saying, hey, regional organizations work. Because we recognize <laughs> that all countries are part of the OAS. We recognize that other regions don't have a structure like the OAS. But we think that our experience should not be discounted any at all. One of the things that used to come up was trying to get the different regional organizations to talk to each other and share experiences. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some are strong, as you noted, others aren't, but they're all stronger than they were, say, five yeah. years ago. So how's that going? Are you trying that? Is that? Does it happen regularly? Does it happen at all? I mean, what's your, um, what's your favorite regional organization? <laughs> You can skip that. But Chloe, this is what you don't. This is what you don't take. <laughs> you, you don't choose among your children, Jim. You know that. <laughs> Look, one other thing that if you had listened to the last intercessional, the chair for the Open Ended Working Group was so proud because I think it was the first time he got all regional organizations to be online, whether we some was pre-recorded, but the fact that he got everyone to submit something, I think that's a huge step. What role can the OAS play in that? We've always offered to the chair and to everyone and the member states of the UN that we are happy to convene something like that if asked. Uh, we have no issue reaching out. We work with all of those regional bodies for different topics within the OAS. So it may not just be cyber. So we have a relationship with some of those organizations already. Which ones have we worked or touched base with? I can probably say more regularly or have discussed how we can tighten our cross-regional. With the Asia-specific region, we've talked to CSA to see how we can figure out, which is why for the GFC global meeting, I put my hands up and say, hey, we're going to do the cross-regional one. And I shouted out to Singapore and said, you, I haven't spoken to you yet, but I will. We're going to do this together. <laughs> and they wrote back in the chat, they're like, sure. 
<laughs> so you know that you have a relationship enough cross regionally that you could actually put another regional body on the spot and you won't get like a pushback because I think we've built up that rapport mm -hmm. trying to figure out how to make it work there's no specific funds to do it you know funding makes things happen we are across the ocean mm -hmm. there's so much that zoom can do you know yeah we also have a really good rapport with the OACE when we were actually setting up our CBM's points of contacts portal I actually called Silvio and I said, hey, I'm doing this. You have it. How does it work? What, what should I not do? And she listened and she, she spoke to me. And we consulted with her like, as we were thinking of ideas. And when she saw us present ours, she called me and she's like, Carrie, I think I need to consult with you now. <laughs> you know, you got it there. So as we continue to build the African Union, we had a really good rapport with ECOWAS at one point. African Union has reached out to us. We've done PowerPoints to them on our CSERT network. Mm -hmm whatever they ask we, we've been willing but I think at the UN level if that mandate is pushed down I think it makes it easier for regional bodies to do it I mean as a part of our CBMs believe it or not not the mm -hmm. cyber ones mm -hmm. the 37 I spoke of mm -hmm. it actually says African Union European Union to consult and work with all of those bodies mm -hmm. so we have a we have a CBMs that speaks to it which I think is a big deal as well so how are you guys doing with what we euphemistically call great power conflict? Because you've got two major conflicts now in the world, maybe more, but certainly the the Russians who are observers, I think, and the Chinese who the conflict with the U.S. is becoming tougher every week. How does that affect your work here? How does that affect uh, you just ignore it or you just move on or what? It doesn't affect our work directly. So we've not had to do any juggling or dance around it. It does not come up in our work. And I Unlike think like ASEAN, for example. Yeah, it doesn't come up for us at all because I believe we've been so focused on all the other national issues our member states have been working through and trying to ensure we support them through that, including transitional governments and stuff, that geopolitical the wider geopolitical stuff has not affected our work directly. It may affect other organs or bodies within the OAS, but it hasn't come up as an issue for us specifically. Interesting. I mean, it's interesting, as you said, the OAS is also a political organization. And so you have the various committees, including SICTE, but at the, you know, you also have a leaders summit that happens. And, you know, I think OAS is one of the early ones, but still is one where cyber ends up on that agenda too. What do you see going forward for that? You know, you see continued leader attention on this issue. Has a low-hanging fruit already been picked or is there more that the OAS can, can do at that level? I mean, there's a lot more. The OAS as an organ has made its political statements regarding Russia, which is separate at the yeah. more higher level. For the cyber level, for the Summit of the Americas, for example, Cybersecurity came up as a big topic, digitization. Mm -hmm. So we took that mandate, for example, and put it into our SICTE mandate, which then went to the General Assembly as a resolution. So we do recognize that there are other bodies around that may have mandates. For example, ICLAC has a mandate on cyber, which is a part of our mandate to support them in that. The Summit mm -hmm. of the Americas mandate from all the heads of states comes down to us and we've incorporated it. So, for example, them talking about the protection of critical infrastructure was one thing. And for our mandate, we're going to be working through our CSERT network to try and strengthen the ability to protect critical infrastructure. The OAS is also working on a critical infrastructure framework 
Uh, we're being supported by CISA in doing that and then consulting with member states. So in essence, I think it will always come up, Chris, because we are constantly digitizing. And for me, it's not even those leaders recognizing the security by design concept, which you hope one day they will get on board. <laughs> but I think it's them just recognizing that cyber is now becoming just like any other security concern. So like you kind of sit back and you do your security assessment as to what are your risks. Cyber is now becoming a risk, a very contentious risk for some persons. Yeah. Have you gotten the, uh, the economic people in the various countries to embrace that too? Because you know, one of the challenges, and you heard me say this before, is that you know, a lot of countries, you know, even including the US, there, there are bubbles, there are silos of excellence, right? The security people talk to the security people, the economic people talk to the economic people. But if the whole goal is greater digitization, you need to mainstream and integrate them. How how have you seen that evolving? And I know there's lots of different levels and countries in the OAS, so there's no one size fits all. But have you seen more convergence or, or is there more much more that needs to be done there? There's I think there's much more that needs to be done. I think that goes without saying. You can always do more. We're hoping we started off with a lot of our countries with doing these interministerial bodies if they want to do a strategy and bringing everyone at the table. Mm -hmm. So they talk, you know, the multi-stakeholder model and making them talk. So it's textbook. Everyone yeah. at the table talk, but I think the next stage is to actually get them to integrate their work. So they talk, but then once they leave the table, they go back to their day-to-day, -day, their day life, their day jobs. It kind of just stops there. So our next stage is to really try and ensure that they take it deeper to planning. So you have some countries, which I can't name now, but I've been speaking to a lot of our member states and a few of them have recognized it. And a few of them are taking that charge to pull the economics people, the ministries of finance more than just economics, but the ministries of finance with them and co creating concrete budgets for cyber. Yeah. We're seeing that maturity shift in a few countries well. Right. Where it will go from there, I think I've been toying with some ideas to see how we can work, not just with the global conference that's coming up, that's going to be focused on development and cyber, but also regionally, we're speaking to some of our regional partners who are as large as us to see how can we do joint initiatives so that member states can start to see that financing with cyber as an important topic and something should come out next year on that and you'll see it i don't want to cut my chickens before they, <laughs> they hatch but it's 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 brewing and i'm hopeful that you'll see something next year i, I always count my chickens and they never hatch i don't know it's like... <laughs> there's a, probably a inter-american development bank question here but we'll put it on hold for the moment the other part of this is so you've got cbms you've got norms and People are always uh, babbling about norms implementation. We actually observe a norm because it's not a binding thing. But when you talk, that's two questions. Mm -hmm. what, is <laughs> what is implementation right for you? And then what more would you want in norms? I mean, we've been going in circles since 2015. Any chance we'll break out of that? With the norms, what we did as sick day in our last resolution as well, we specifically said that SICTA will support member states in their ability to implement the 11 norms. So we took the language straight out of the UN resolution and say, hey, we're going to, so as a cybersecurity program, we're going to be looking at each of the 11 norms and then seeing how we can build things specifically to build capacity. So whether just doing a webinar on a topic or doing training on something, 
one of the first things we're doing, we're building out a course on international law, recognizing that we still have the CLA course on the Talent Manual, but member states will have specific interest on other topics related to international law more generally. So what does it mean for responsible state behavior? What's the implications for them as a small island state for responsible disclosure? What does vulnerability disclosure mean? Do they need to put legislation in place to protect researchers or protect companies that actually disclose to them for them to be able to like, actually delving into what does responsible state disclosure mean <laughs> as it relates to one of to the, to the norms? Because there are several norms there, but that one in particular, I think capacity, if you tie it back to what we do, we do capacity building. So like taking it all the way back and stripping it back to what would it require for me as a country to be able to do this? So I think that's the aspect of international law we need to help our member states grapple with as they debate at the UN. That's one I've pulled out specifically for next year. About half of the norms are self-implementing, you know, so you don't have to do a lot of work. Which are the hardest ones for implementation or observation? That I couldn't say, if I'm honest, because I said we have... 32 diverse experiences, yeah. we have Canada and the US, and we have, yeah. as I said, some of this Dominica. Yeah. So if you take it even from just that alone and recognizing Dominica having all the challenges with just climate change and earthquakes and hurricanes and everything else economically, and then still being a digital state, because they are pushing ahead to be completely digitized as a government. Mm-hmm. So it would be difficult to answer that one. But as it relates to the CBMs, I don't know if you heard, but five new ones were actually proposed in our last meeting this year, which I think was pretty exciting. One was related to gender, one was related to international law, and one was actually related to a schema being able to identify the severity of. So it's like when you see that they're actually think our member states are putting forward additional CBMs, that's a win to us. CBMs that were able to be discussed at the meeting, but still has to be debated at our committee on hemispheric security and then at the General Assembly before it's actually adopted it's really really cool to know that there's progress and discussion still happening i mean you know obviously and you said this a few times there's a real diversity of countries within the region and there's certainly geopolitical differences between those countries but would you say uh, on this area in the cyber area there's been more convergence than i know you have to be careful in answering this than sort of conflict between various countries and economies it's you know it seems like even though there, there's lots of disagreements among countries in the region on lots of different things, it seems like on cyber there's been more convergence. Has that been right? Yeah, I think I, what the correct statement would be is that on the need for capacity to be able to okay. cyber threat, there's convergence on the need for capacity. So I think there are different views still on the different topics within cyber. Right. Like, I, for instance, I think one of the hard ones is accountability. You know, you yeah. talked about norms jim talked about norms and and this is one of the challenges all over the world is like how do you deal with accountability now yeah. so there's just I, different those specific topics there's like there will continue to but i think where the convergence specifically is on capacity building and gender as well i think gender has been something that's been a common threat for our member states so far if you check all of their contributions the ones who have spoken those two things are, have been very, very consistent. The other thing that's been consistent is the need for technical people. So there's been support for the CSERTS Americas network throughout our member states. But the big topics, there's still a lot of, yeah, member states, I wouldn't say there's complete conversions on the bigger topics. I'm technically a person, but I'm not a technical person. So, uh, but looking forward, 
what ne- what's next? What else? What what is the you talked a little bit about this, but what is the ambition for the OAS say in the next whatever number of years you want to use? I hate coming up with like five years or ten years, but what what do you see as the next big moves for OAS? I think as I look at at the next, I'm looking like even short term, the next three to five years. I think as the OAS is really, and I've said it, as you said, a hundred times, I think it's really recognizing that it is a big boy now as it relates to capacity building in cybersecurity. And I think when you kind of recognize your maturity, your lens will change a bit. So we're talking to our member states as well as the mature ones as to what is the next stage for them as a country, because we're driven by our member states. We as the OAS, as the general secretary, can't dictate to our member states what to do. But what we've been saying is uh, seeing is a change in even the mandates that the SICTE has been getting. And that maturity is showing in our member states where they recognize the need to establish a coordinator for cyber, or they recognize the need to set up an agency for cyber. So I think as a cybersecurity program, it's meeting our member states at the different stages of maturity they are right now. And that would include doing more, as I keep saying, intelligent capacity building. So taking each country now, not just as a reach. I think we've raised awareness. Mm -hmm. That's evident. I think we've ticked that box and that's continuous. That's not something that will stop. But the efforts we took back in the days to focus on strategies and focus on awareness raising, that's still needed. But our member states are now know we need a strategy. So it's now to make sure that their strategy matches their economic level, their digitization goals, and making sure that it speaks to them really getting mature in five years in cyber and not just giving them the basics. You know, initially we were just doing the basics because they didn't have anything. But what's cool is we have about five countries who are on their second and third strategies. So Colombia is on its third, Jamaica is on its going on into its second. Belize is ready to do its second. We have Trinidad and Tobago ready to do its second. Panama is considering it. We have so many countries now moving from just a first strategy to a second strategy. And we just need to meet them where they are. So it's to keep up with our member states now. Do any of them look at Ukraine as a way to think about what a good strategy would look like moving forward? Because the Ukrainian experience is really indicative of what a good cyber strategy would look like. I can't say they've mentioned it specifically. If if I was to say that, I'd lie. Like, I can't think anyone has said it specifically. But we do look at all the good strategies. Like, when we do our reviews, we actually use Anissa's database, and we actually pull down a lot of the strategies, and we look at what is comparable for where the country is. Mm -hmm. So we do do some review of it. And based on the more recent ones that have come out, we would then, like, compare what your ambitions are and see if someone else has done it. So we actually give that level of advice. Mm-hmm. But in the recent engagements we've had, it hasn't come up specifically. Okay. They do it on their own. Maybe they do. You mentioned how many countries now have national strategies, which is impressive, although a lot are in draft get that. How many now have national level certs? Oh, a lot. I can give you the numbers specifically. Hold on. Because that I think would help you to see, because that's one of the things that we're impressed with. We have 35 certs in the region, national certs, and then 20 countries. And we have over 221 cybersecurity specialists from those certs on the network. And how many countries now have like a dedicated or at least partly dedicated cyber diplomat? 
So we have not done that mapping. That's something that we plan. Remember when I spoke to the fact that our CBM speaks to diplomacy? Yeah. One of the things that we've been toying with as a program, and this is something that we could do, is to actually create like a diplomatic network because of the mm-hmm. discussions with the UN aren't going anywhere. It's not going to go away anytime soon. Once yeah. this first phase of the GGE finish, it's like it has... I'm hoping UN members continue because I don't think everything will be concluded. So we see the need to start creating that network of diplomats now. And you can probably check me next year, August. I okay. can't do that no more. <laughs> <laughs> next year, August. <laughs> we, I think Chris would agree. We've always seen the OAS as one of the leaders in this. Yeah, absolutely. And so ASEAN does well and OSCE does well. And some of the others do well too, but OAS has always been a leader. And not just because of the really diverse membership, but because the organization itself put some attention to the issue early on. So what's any final remarks here on what you think the future might be for OAS or where you wanna go? I'm sort of less hopeful for the UN. I think it's it's in an impasse and it will be in an impasse for a while. Third committee might be different. They might actually get something, but what about the OAS? What's your final thoughts here? I think we have, as it relates to cyber, as the OES, we have a lot to contribute to the UN understanding what is capacity building. And we're really hoping that they tap into our knowledge. We don't just do it for cyber, like even within SICTE, we've done it for 1540. So other UN related resolutions we've helped. Yeah. Bioterrorism, we do the anti-money laundering um, resolutions. We do a lot of capacity building related to all of those things. So we work with UNITIR, we work with UNCTAD, we work with UNODC. Yep. So we have a history as SICDE to work with the UN in helping them to implement their mandates for capacity building. So we're hoping for cyber, our future with the UN especially, would be that they see cyber as no difference. So we can continue that seamless relationship in developing capacity building programs. Well, Carrie-Anne, you, you've been a, a great partner of uh, the GFC. You've been a great partner of Jim and I over the years and uh, interlocutor. And it's great to have you here. We definitely want to have you come back and see how things have progressed even further. 